Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you bless this proclamation of your word tonight to our hearts. Illumine us, we pray, by the power of your spirit to understand it aright. Lord, may we see the glory of the intricacy of this book that you have authored for our good, for the glory of your great name. Encourage us tonight, we ask, as you apply this text to us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you may know, the book of Exodus is divided up into three sections as a book of the Old Testament, the last section of which takes up the subject matter of the tabernacle, which would later be replaced by the permanent temple, as we know, once they get into the land. And those who would serve as priests in this tabernacle were none other than Aaron and his sons, a God chosen his own infinite wisdom for Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Chapters 8, 28, and 29 really are wedded together because these two chapters give attention to the priests themselves. As you know throughout this last section, a lot of the different features of the tabernacle and a lot of the different pieces of furniture that would be within the tabernacle are discussed. But these two chapters particularly take up the subject matter of the priests themselves. Chapter 28 deals primarily with the priestly garments that they would be clothed in, Aaron and his sons. And then chapter 29 would be the ordination ceremony of Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Chapter 28 is more digestible, if you will, for many readers because it provides a nice easy walkthrough of each of the pieces of clothing that Aaron and his sons would wear, both the high priest as well as the priests and how those would be placed upon the body. But chapter 29 often is a rather passed over chapter due to its intricate details that provides the stages of the ordination ceremony of Aaron and his sons. Even in the reading of Exodus 29 tonight, you see how much is there regarding blood and earlobes and big toes. But it's this chapter, chapter 29, the ordination ceremony of Aaron and his sons that's going to take up our attention over the next few weeks. Hopefully, it will not only assist us in understanding or at least ironing out some of the difficulties of this chapter and its application to us, but may the Lord use it to increase our understanding of himself and especially our understanding of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ who is the fulfillment of the priesthood altogether. And indeed, there's much fruit to be found for our souls in this chapter. So uh, this is the chapter toward which we will turn now. Initially, I had planned for us to begin at the beginning of chapter 29 and just work our way through the first section of this chapter. But I think that it actually will be more profitable for us to start at the end of chapter 29 tonight. If you look at verse 1 of 29, let me open back up there. Exodus 29, look at verse 1. And this is what you shall do to them, talking about Aaron and his sons, to hallow them, which is to to consecrate them for ministering to me as priests. And then if you turn to the back side of 29, the the very tail end at verses 43 to 46, this is what we read. 
And there I will meet with the children of Israel and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I'll dwell among the children of Israel and be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them up out of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Here at the close of this chapter, we find something that is very, very helpful to us. And it's, it's helpful to us on, on many layers. This final and particularly the final two verses of chapter 29 not only provide for us the aim and purpose of the priesthood and its ordination, but it also provides us an understanding of the aim of the entire message of the book of Exodus. And even furthermore, believe it or not, it may be argued that the close of chapter 29 of Exodus provides for us the aim of the entire Bible's message, the whole meta-narrative of the Bible as a whole. These final verses of Exodus 29 serve really as a capstone and summary to the whole book of Exodus as they reflect back upon all that it's come before, all the way up to and arriving at the priest's ordination. And what we find in these verses uh, is that they helpfully correspond to the way that the book of Exodus is structured. It corresponds to the whole outline of the book of Exodus. And in fact, it corresponds to the whole meta-narrative of the whole Bible. So this is just very profound verses of scripture. If you were to box out a, a couple of verses in the whole book of Exodus that you always want to have your eyes go to when you come to Exodus, it would actually be the last two verses of 29. So the book of Exodus is structured into three sections, and we're going to actually see that correspond to the close of Exodus 29 tonight. And just for our help, we'll see that the three sections of the book of Exodus, you could start with the letter D. The first being the deliverance of God that you find in chapters 1 to 18 of Exodus. And then it moves from the D of deliverance to the D of demands of God that you find in chapters 19 to 24. And then you have the last D, which is the dwelling of God, which is chapters 25 and following. So we read in verse 46 here, this language that's very familiar to us. I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the one that has brought this deliverance. You know, the book of Genesis, again, kind of backing up and looking at the meta narrative here. The book of Genesis ends so wonderfully, doesn't it? God has blessed Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and given them promises. And Jacob's family encounters this horrible famine. And it looks as though God's promises to his people might come to an end because his people are going to perish in this horrible famine. And then we see God beautifully and providentially preserving his people by sending Joseph ahead of them into the land of Egypt where Joseph rises to a great position of power in Egypt and he's able to welcome the people of God safely and securely into Goshen right there in the land of Egypt. But 
Though they were safe in Egypt, and Genesis comes to a real nice landing on that verse, last few verses of Genesis, we are also reminded that though they're secure in Egypt, Egypt is not the promised land. So you move into Exodus, and immediately when you jump in the book of Exodus, the drama starts to increase. The numbers of God's people have multiplied over the years, and eventually a Pharaoh was raised up in the land of Egypt, and the scripture says he didn't know Joseph. He was not aware of all that historically had taken place with Joseph, and he feared the numbers of all of these people of of Israel. They had multiplied too great, and so he thought, well, we need to bring them into slavery to keep this under control. So they found themselves as slaves among foreigners. Of course, in the third chapter, you have the burning bush event where God meets with Moses, who's going to be the mediator of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And he says in chapter 3, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. And there God reveals to Moses his special covenantal personal name, I am, Yahweh. And later, after Moses sees God's people, their burdens are now increased by Pharaoh. And he turns to the Lord. And what does he say? He says, Yahweh, you have not delivered your people at all. And the Lord responds to to Moses in Exodus chapter 6. And he says, I will do this. And there's a whole series of I wills there in Exodus chapter 6 where he tells and responds to Moses and says, I am the Lord and I will bring you up out of the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from the slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he says these words that lie at the heart of God's covenant dealings. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And Yahweh, of course, miraculously saves them out of Egypt, passing over his people in the 10th plague because of the blood that was placed on the doorposts and above the door. And Yahweh miraculously then brings them to the Red Sea and parts the Red Sea and brings them through dry land. Well, why is it that God saved his people? Why did God go about preserving his people? On what basis was his action? Well, the book of Exodus is very careful to provide us the reason why God saves them. Moses makes it very clear in Exodus chapter 2 and in Exodus chapter 6. He says, the Lord remembered his covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was the foundation of God's actions. It says he heard their affliction, and he says he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then, then God acts. Pharaoh did not know Joseph, but God knew Joseph. And the God of Joseph is keeping his covenant promises made to the patriarchs. And on the basis of God's covenantal oath, God delivers his people from slavery. He is faithful to his promises that he made to them. And even in the wilderness, after they get on the other side of the Red Sea, the Lord continues to provide for them all throughout this wilderness journey, making bitter water sweet, providing manna from heaven, causing water to spring up out of a rock. He provides again and again for them in the wilderness. And so chapter 29, verse 46, really capstones the whole message of Exodus chapters 1 through 18. Because that's what it's all about. 
It's about the deliverance of God. And he says here at the end of 29, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Now, how does this fit into the greater narrative of scripture? Well, you and I too are in bondage to our sin under the tyranny of Satan, enslaved to our own passions, enslaved to our own lusts and desires, enslaved to the power of sin, and indeed in bondage to sin. And we're so enslaved that we actually think that we are not in need of being freed. We sought God no more than a wanted criminal seeks out a police officer. We're in need and don't know it. We are shackled and we kiss the shackles that shackles our wrists in a state of of desperation. And we are tied, of course, to the consequences of that sin, which is death and condemnation. And yet God in his mercy set us free. God in his mercy delivers us from our sin and its consequences through the blood of the Lamb of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are passed over. And all of this is because God keeps his oath and his promises to his people. Um, He, in eternity past, covenanted with his son who agreed to take upon himself the full weight of carrying out our redemption. And Jesus himself does that. In effect, the Lord Jesus says unto his father, I will go down. I will bear their name. I will take upon myself their sins. I will go to the cross of Calvary. I will go into the depths of Sheol. All because I've sworn to do it. And it's, of course, by the blood of Christ that we are saved. And just as God provided for his people in their wilderness journey after their redemption through the waters, the Lord provides for us in our pilgrimage as we carry on and we journey towards our promised land, which is, of course, glory itself. So we see not only the deliverance of the nation of Israel here at the close of 29, but our own deliverance by God's mighty hand through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, this also is encompassed in the whole first section of the book of Exodus. We find that the emphasis in our text this evening in verses 45 and 46, we, it says three times, I will be their God, I am the Lord their God, I am the Lord their God. Three times it says that. He is the one who not only provides for them, but he also is the one that instructs them. He's the one that reveals his will to them. So we move from deliverance to demands because in the book of Exodus as a whole, the scene shifts to the second section of the book whenever Israel gets finally to Sinai. At Mount Sinai, there's a lot of strange things happening up there on that mount. There's all types of thunder and lightning and trumpets blasting and dark smoke. And the Lord speaks. And what does the Lord speak? He speaks forth his will. He speaks forth his law. He speaks forth his demands, his instructions to his people. Now, in the ancient Near East, when a covenant was being cut by a suzerain king, which would be known as the great king, and in fact, you find that language throughout the Old Testament, where God is is called the great king or the suzerain king, it was customary that whenever he would cut a covenant with a vassal king or a, a vassal nation, which is a lesser nation, one that is subservient to the great king and also has reaped a lot of benefits from the great king and is provided for by the great king and is given protection by the great suzerain king. It was very common in those covenants that they would structure those covenants in a certain way. First of all, it would open with naming who the suzerain king is. 
And after the suzerain king's name was given, it then immediately would begin to recount anything that the suzerain king had done for the vassal. Anything, any war that he would have won, anything that he would have done to bring about some type of victory or some type of benefit or gain for that vassal. And all of that would serve as the impetus for what would come in the third section. The third section of the covenant would be setting forth all the stipulations. Here I am the suzerain king. This is what I have done for you. And that serves as an impetus for you to live in accordance with my instruction to live in accordance with what I'm calling you to do as a vassal state or a vassal people. It serves as the impetus to want to obey those commands. Now, we clearly have this type of language being utilized at the opening of the Decalogue. It is the reason why when you come to chapter 20 of Exodus and you come to the Ten Commandments, how does it open? The suzerain king is identified. He says... I am the Lord your God. That's the way the whole chapter starts, right? The whole section begins there in in chapter 20. I am the Lord your God. And then what does he say second? Who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage? He identifies himself as a suzerain king. He now recounts what he has done in redeeming the people, in saving the people, preserving the people from destruction, and bringing about their redemption. And all of that is to serve as the starting point for why all of the instructions that the suzerain king will give, you ought to obey and follow. Out of gratitude for what the suzerain king has done for you, it gives you this impetus to now hear his voice and heed his voice. And that's exactly what we find here. After he says, I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, therefore have no other gods before you. The impetus for you to obey that command to not have any other gods before you is that you're the only God that has redeemed us. You are our God and you are the great king that we submit ourselves to. And so it serves as the appropriate response of this saving work of God for God's people. They're not to have any gods before them. They are to hallow his name. They're to honor his day. They are to do what pleases him in their relationships with each other and others. And that serves as the motivation for living obediently before his commands. As they consider the who that they are serving, the one that's brought them out of the land of Egypt so that they can say with the psalmist, I delight in your law. I delight in your instruction." And of course, this narrative that we find in the whole book of Exodus, as you move into the second section, it really is part of the greater narrative of the Bible, is it not? The greater narrative of redemption that we find throughout Scripture. We who have been redeemed by the mighty hand of God, who has brought us through the waters of judgment and onto the other side, he's brought us this great redemption by his power. He didn't leave us to our own ingenuity regarding how we ought to now respond to that salvation. Rather, God has provided us his will for our lives. In fact, you find that pattern as we've seen so many times throughout the New Testament on many occasions where we're reminded again and again that before the Lord provides us imperatives, he always precedes those with indicatives. We find that throughout the New Testament where God says, this is who I am and what I've done for you. This is the salvation I've won for you in Christ Jesus. And out of a heart that is swelled with gratitude and thanksgiving, this is what pleases me. God, you've saved me from my sins and out of the depth of darkness. How how should I respond to so great a salvation? And the Lord says, let me show you what pleases me. 
We see that, for instance, in Romans where you get to the 12th chapter and what does he say? In view of God's mercy. In view. See that indicative? In view of what I've done for you and accomplished for you in Christ, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He then moves into those imperatives, right? Gives us instructions. You find the same thing in 1 Peter after writing about God's mercy, bringing new life and giving us an eternal inheritance. Peter says, therefore, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but be holy in all of your conduct as he is holy. And it's Peter that tells us in the first letter of Peter where he starts giving us labels and he assigns the church labels. And it's very interesting the labels that he assigns. He says unto them, you're a royal priesthood and you're a holy nation. Those are labels he gave to the nation of Israel. And now he's turning and giving those same labels to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And he then proceeds to address this royal priesthood, this holy nation, and he gives them all of these instructions on how they're to live in a foreign land in their pilgrimage. That's what the whole book of 1 Peter takes up is you're traveling to glory. What does that look like in your life? And he provides that to us. So Exodus teaches us that being God's people not only involves the grand deliverance and salvation of God. But it also includes God's demands, his instructions, his will, his law. And therein we find what's an appropriate response to our redemption. For he is the Lord our God. Finally, this leads us to a most important question tonight. For what purpose does this covenant God redeem Israel? And the last part of Exodus 29 tells us precisely why he redeemed them. One might say, well, surely the reason that God redeemed Israel was to demonstrate to Israel and to all those Egyptians who is the one that is the powerful one, who is the great God of all gods. And that's certainly true. He does demonstrate. He can part water. He can bring water out of a rock. The Lord does certainly demonstrate his power through his redeeming Israel. But... What is the purpose of God covenanting himself with anybody? Whether it be Adam or Abraham or David or the nation of Israel or the new covenant people of God, the answer of why God covenants with anyone is the third D, is to dwell with, is to dwell in fellowship and in communion with the one with whom he's covenanted. The word dwell in Exodus is very, very crucial. Exodus moves from the second section to the third and final section as you move from chapter 24 to chapter 25. And it's very interesting how he ends off 24 before he goes to the third section, which is 25. So turn over just a few pages there to Exodus 24. I want you to see how he ends off chapter 24. And look with me at chapter 24, beginning with verse 15. It says, Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, look with me at the beginning of the last section of Exodus, which is chapter 25 at verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That sanctuary, of course, is the tabernacle. 
Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now go to the very last chapter of the book of Exodus and see how it ends in chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. I'll give you a minute to get there. And notice how the book of Exodus ends. Exodus chapter 40. Look with me at verse 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's exactly what took place on Mount Sinai before you came into the last section of the book of Exodus, which is chapters 25 and following. So what is the purpose of God redeeming his people in this powerful and dramatic way? It is so that he may dwell with them. The end of chapter 29 tells us precisely why he did it. It's that they might know that he is their God and that they are his people because of his favorable presence with them. And it's through the tabernacle that he is able to dwell with them. It's plain in this summary text here in Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46. I will dwell among the children of Israel and I'll be their God. And they shall know that I'm the Lord their God that brought them up out of Egypt. So that, that's a purpose clause, so that I may dwell among them. The purpose, the goal, the end of God's relating to anyone favorably is that he may dwell with us, live in communion with us. Now, you know, one might think that the exodus of Israel from Egypt through the Red Sea that is so dramatized by popular literature about the story of Moses is the whole point of the book of Exodus. That surely the book of Exodus is primarily about the Exodus. One would certainly think so. But let me ask you this. A moment ago, how many pages did you have to turn to get to the end of the book of Exodus when you were at chapter 25? I even said, let me give you a moment to get there. Right? What takes up the majority of the book of Exodus? It's not the Exodus. What takes up the majority of attention of this whole book? It's not God's delivering them out of Egypt. But rather, what does take up the majority? How God's going to dwell with his people. And they dwell with him in communion and sweet fellowship. That's the whole purpose of redemption. Is God's dwelling. Some people say, well, we got past the Exodus. Man, they've made it through this parting of this Red Sea. I've read books about that and seen that depicted in many different paintings. Man, now we got to go into all of these different intricate laws and all these different, all these, uh, you know, furnitures and tents and animal skins and stuff. Man, I wish we now kind of left the, the juice. No, actually, when you get to chapter 25 of Exodus, you now have reached the juice. You've reached the whole point of Exodus. You've reached the whole trajectory it's going. When you arrive at chapter 25 and you're launching into this, what God's given them blueprints of the tabernacle, God's now saying, this is how I'm going to dwell with you. I saved you so that I could dwell with you. And this is how it's going to happen. See, you've reached the climax. And you know what? This encompasses the whole meta-narrative of the Bible. You see, we now back out again. God's purposes of redemption is never about fire insurance. It's not about how to get you out of hell. 
God's purpose of redemption is very personal. And it is him relating to a sinful people favorably such that his loving presence dwells with them. That's the whole point of salvation. Is God dwelling with his people and they living in communion with him. You know, John tells us at the opening of his gospel, what does he say? Jesus, the Redeemer, tabernacled among us. That was the, that's where this whole thing is going. And what was the name given to Jesus? Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. You see, it's all about dwelling. It's all about God coming down and descending in such graciousness, making a way for him to dwell with the people whom he loves and the people that he's redeemed. And so the great I am is dwelling among men. It's amazing, not in glory, but in humility. And he won our redemption. And having won our redemption, where is it that the Lord Jesus ascended? Into the heavenly temple of God as our great high priest. And there in heaven, he has prepared a place for his people. In heaven. You know, that's a good question for us to contemplate for just a moment. And that is, what is this heaven that Jesus has prepared for his people? What makes heaven heaven? Well, turn with me to Revelation 21. We're doing the whole scope of the Bible tonight, y'all. Let's go all the way to Revelation 21. We actually read this chapter this morning in our public reading, the whole chapter of 21. So this is probably fresh on your minds. But here we have the vision of heaven, which is the true temple. That which the tabernacle and temple below was only a type of. And I want you to look at Revelation 21 and look with me at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, Write for these words are true and faithful. And he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. I will give the foundation of waters of life freely to him who thirsts. And then if you look over at verse 22, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. Heaven is heaven only because of the presence of God dwelling. His dwelling is what makes heaven heaven. So what is redemption all about? That's what redemption's all about. What's the book of Exodus about? That's what the books of Exodus is all about. What is the whole Bible about? That's what the Bible is all about. God, in his graciousness, making a way to dwell with the people whom he loves and wants to have communion with and fellowship with, sweet relationship with. God dwelling in loving favor and rich fellowship with his people that he's redeemed. Brothers and sisters, this is the way the chapter before us over the next few weeks comes to a close. And this only accents the importance, and if I can use this language, the awful honor, awful honor of those whom he called as types of Christ to be set apart as priests, ordained to be priests for the purpose of serving in this earthly tent that is a copy of heaven on behalf of the people. And if you'll notice, if you'll just go back for one last peek at Exodus 29, 
At the very close of 29, we read here in verse 43, And there I will meet with the children of Israel. That's the tabernacle. The tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory, just like Moses when he was on top of the mountain. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting in the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. And that's what chapter 29 captures, is this whole ordination ceremony of these men who are called to serve in this dwelling place, this tabernacle of God. And we'll have the privilege over the next few weeks to consider that consecration of these men. And through their consecration ceremony, it's my prayer that we gain much fruit as we learn more about our God, our Redeemer, and ourselves who are called in the New Testament, holy priests. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and oh how we're reminded tonight of how there's one author from beginning to end. And you're telling really one grand story. Father, thank you for the book of Exodus that provides a microcosm of it. And Father, thank you for our own personal story being wrapped up in this story of redemption. For we are your people whom you've redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Help us to understand over these next few weeks what it means to be priests and what this means for our great high priest and what he's accomplished for us. May you, Father, guide our hearts and our understanding of this consecration ceremony. And may it profit us much by your Spirit. We thank you, Father, for delivering us. We thank you for the demands or the instructions that you give us and the impetus you give us for wanting to obey you and to walk in your way. And we thank you for the dwelling, which is the whole aim of that redemption. And God, we thank you that you've given us an eternal hope that we long to enter into when we are with you face to face and we are with you for eternity in your dwelling, enjoying your pleasures forevermore. Until then, Father, be our strength here below. May you, Father, nourish us by your word as we meditate upon it and be shaped by it. May you strengthen our faith all the more. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.